and welcome to week five of our Closer series. We've really put in the title exactly what we were hoping would happen in the series between you and God. And that's we're hoping that this series would help us all draw closer to God. And what I love about that, I know that's right in line with God's heart and desire for you as well. God wants to be close to you. Uh, look at someone and say, God wants to be close to you. You know, there's this interesting trend that's happening at the moment in Hollywood. I'm sure some of you are aware of it. Hopefully there are some nerds in the room like me, right? There's this thing that they do in movies and TV series and uh, music videos called Easter eggs. Now, when I'm talking about Easter eggs, I'm not talking about those, you know, those chocolate bunnies that you eat in April. When I'm talking about Easter eggs, I'm talking about these clues that they put in these movies, these hidden references, these these symbols that talk about like behind the scene jokes or that they give you an idea of what is coming up next or, or like one symbol or a number that speaks into something that's happening in another movie. And there's entire YouTube channels, by the way, dedicated to deciphering the Easter eggs, the hidden messages in the movies and the hidden messages in the TV series and, and the music videos. I mean, Marvel, for example, has been amazing at this. Right, they've built this entire universe, and you know in one movie you see this thing, and it means, oh, it means that in that movie, and I, all these things work together. Star Wars has been amazing at building all these little Easter eggs, and probably the queen at the moment of Easter eggs is Taylor Swift, right? Like in her music videos, everyone's like, I've watched like all these TikToks and these YouTube things of like, oh, and this symbol meant this thing, and this color over here was referencing that album, and it's like, wow, okay, because just all these little Easter eggs. Now, I want to just say right off the bat, that God was way ahead of the curve. He was way ahead of the trend because I don't know if you know this, but there is no one better at Easter eggs than God himself. Like he has invented that concept. In fact, when you're reading through the Bible, it is amazing. The kind of symbols and items and references that are placed in this place, but actually are symbols for that to come and speak into this thing. And there's all these connections right throughout these pages of Scripture. All, there's hundreds and thousands of connections. People spend their lives looking into this. In fact, there's this one guy who tried to kind of illustrate. He took the Scriptures and he tried to reference with these lines how one Scripture speaks into another scripture and he ended up with his entire diagram those are all the known connections to him of how scripture speaks into itself about how symbolism prophesies things to come and now let me remind you church that the 66 books that make up the bible were written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years from people of all different backgrounds, from kings and shepherds and fishermen and tax collectors. And yet there is one overarching message between all these pages. And that is evidence to us that is it's the same spirit of God that inspired all of these books. For any of you, by the way, who have any doubt about whether God is real, about whether Christianity is real, just look to the Bible. This historical book is a miracle. No one could have orchestrated that. No one could have planned this ahead of advance. There was no one alive long enough, right? 
It is a miracle how many things in one book reference another, predict another, speak back to another. The kind of connections and Easter eggs, the symbolism in here. People have they've literally spent their entire lives dedicated to discovering what's in here. And I don't think we're ever going to get to the end of it. It's like a bottomless pit of wealth and treasure. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at one of the Old Testament Easter eggs. I want to look at something in the Old Testament that I believe has a direct impact on our faith today. And that is the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle of God, which we read about in Scripture, we see in Scripture, and Scripture is very, very detailed about what's happening in the tabernacle of God. In fact, it dedicates 16 chapters of the Bible from Exodus chapter 20 to Exodus 45. And if you want to go read in detail, it gives you the, the measurements and the materials and how things should be made. This is a image that we have right now. This kind of gives you an idea, like this temple of what it kind of looked like. It was 45 meters long by 22 meters long. That's like the entire footprint. And it was put there in the middle as they were wandering. This was something made of skins and cloth to be portable. So as they wandered the desert, the tabernacle would wander with them and then be set up in the middle of the camp. And so there are these specific images. There's things that happen with the tabernacle that speak right into our lives today that predict even Jesus is coming. Now, the symbolism with the tabernacle is way too deep to fully chat about today. I mean, this could be its own series, right? It could be its own course, the symbolism regarding the tabernacle. But I want to stop on some of the highlights today because I think it really can have an impact on who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, why was the tabernacle given in the first place? Why were they told to construct the tabernacle in the first place? A lot of people would firstly say, hey, it's because of sacrifice. They needed a place to make sacrifices, but actually that's not why the temple was given. The tabernacle was given for a different reason, and we're told this reason explicitly in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, and I want you to turn there with me if you have your Bibles. We're going to read together in verse 8. To have the people of Israel, God says, build me a holy sanctuary so that they can make sacrifices. No. So that... I may live among them. Again, we sing the heart of God that we have seen echoed right throughout this series so far. God wanted to be with his people. He wanted to be with them. The problem is the people had sin on them. And they had no way of getting beyond their sin, past their sin, away from their sin. And so God couldn't be with them in the fullness of his presence because they would die, Right? So he needed to be with them, but there needed to be a separation. So he said, construct something that will separate my full presence from the people of Israel, yet I will still be in there because that is my heart's desire. I want to be with you. The purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could be with his people. And now let me ask you this question. Why did Jesus come? Some people again would say, to make a sacrifice. It's all about the sacrifice, all about the sacrifice, but actually... That isn't why Jesus came. The sacrifice was in order to fulfill why he came. Why did Jesus come? Well, when his birth is being announced in the book of Matthew, it says this in Matthew 1, 23. It says, look, the virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. Why was Jesus sent? What's the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry? So that God could be with you. So that Emmanuel, God could be with us. The temple was a foreshadowing of Jesus. And right off the bat, we see that they are given for the same purpose. The reason for the temple and the reason for Jesus Christ are the same. They're both given so that God could be with us. So let's have a look at how this temple was constructed and what some of these items in the temple mean. The first section of the tabernacle was the outer court. Everyone say outer court. And so this was a place that was outdoors. It was seen. It was public. And there's two items in the outer court. The one item is a bronze altar. That's the first thing you're going to find at the tabernacle, a bronze altar. Now, it's constructed of wood, and it's covered in bronze. And it's interesting because when you start getting into the tent, everything in the tent is covered in gold. But outside of the holy place, outside of the tent, everything is covered in bronze. And many scholars believe this is to reference the judgment of God. We know that when Jesus comes back as king and judge, his feet will be that of brass, of brass, of bronze, right? And so he has this altar. What is this altar used for? It's used to sacrifice animals. Because in that system, they also knew, God would tell them, that there is no remission of sin. There's no getting rid of our sin without the blood. And so they would sacrifice animals so that the blood of that animal would stand as a ransom for them so that their sins could be dealt with. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? We turn to the New Testament, and now we see this perfect, spotless lamb of God who willingly shed his blood, who willingly laid down his life and sacrificed himself for us. Why? So that the sins of the world may be taken care of once and for all. The bronze altar points directly to Jesus. It's saying, hey, right now you're in a temporary system. This is a foreshadowing. But there is a lamb coming that can permanently remove the sins of the world, the sins of the nation. This bronze altar pointing to Jesus. The next item that we're going to find in uh, the outer court is the bronze laver. Everyone say bronze laver. A laver is like a basin, right? And this basin was after the bronze altar, was filled with water. And what's interesting, it was constructed from the mirrors of the Egyptian women. Remember as uh, the Israelites were fleeing, when they were leaving Israel, that the Egyptians were like giving them treasures and gifts. Well, a lot of women, they started to, they, they gave their mirrors away because those were treasures, right? These bronze reflective mirrors. Scholars say that Egypt looked terrible after that, right? No, I'm kidding. So here we have Israel had all these mirrors with them of the Egyptian women and got to take those mirrors and I want you to construct from those mirrors the bronze laver for the tabernacle. So we think this was very reflective, very beautiful. What's going on here? Well, this is filled with water. What does water reference in Scripture? Well, when we look at water in Scripture, we see that water many times actually means the Word of God. It's a Bible. It's a Word. In Ephesians 5, it says, Make her holy and clean 
In verse 26, washing her by the cleansing of God's word. And it's interesting because in James, James actually references a Bible and says the Bible is a mirror. He says, don't look into this mirror and then walk away and forget what you've seen. And so we see that there is this idea of the priest who would, after they've committed the sacrifice, they would go and they would cleanse themselves. They would wash themselves. There's this idea that there is a cleansing that comes from the Word of God. Now, when Jesus comes, we're told that He is the Word of God made flesh. The bronze altar is pointing to who? Jesus. The Word of God made flesh who cleanses us. And I find it very interesting, church, that this bronze altar and this laver are out in public. They don't happen in private. There's a lot of Jesus' ministry, by the way, that happened in private. A lot of Jesus' ministry happened behind the scenes or on the mountaintops or just with the disciples. But what happened in public was a sacrifice. The sacrifice was publicly viewed to all. And already we're seeing this laid out for us in the tabernacle. That the sacrifice of the Lamb will be a public display for all to see. He will, his word will be heard by all. His teachings will be heard by all. This would be the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's reflected here right in the design of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And then you get into this next section of the tabernacle, which was now indoors. And the first room was called the holy place. Everyone say, it's a holy place. The holy place had three items of furniture or three items within it. The first item we see in the holy place is the table of the showbread. Now this table was constructed out of wood, but it was laid and it was covered in gold. In fact, we're going to see everything from here on out speaks about gold, about God's wealth and his treasure and his royalty. This table of the showbread within the holy place was about a meter and a half long and a half a meter high and wide. And on it, there was 12 loaves of bread, one loaf representing each tribe of Israel. And on it as well was, was wine. Now I want you to see this. As you enter the holy place, there's a table with bread and wine. Isn't that incredible? I mean, we see the symbolism already happening before the temple with Melchizedek, where Melchizedek gives Abraham a gift. He gives him bread and wine. Now, as you enter the holy place, we find a table with bread and wine. And what is the one thing that Jesus introduces? What's the one tradition besides baptism that he introduces to the church? It's doing what we did today, coming around the table of bread and wine. Right there sitting in the tabernacle is a representation of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And guess what it was served with? Frankincense. It was offered with frankincense. Remember that word? Which was given to Jesus right in the beginning of his life as a gift. This image right here in the beginning, as you enter the holy place, it's Jesus the bread and the wine and the frankincense, and you turn around and you would see a lamp, the lampstand. The lampstand was a second item in the holy place, and this was made of solid gold. Unlike the other items that were wood covered in gold, the lampstand was solid gold, and many people think it looked like a menorah, but it didn't look like a menorah. It actually 
the idea was that it looks very organic. It looked like almond branches with leaves and, and, and little blossoms of it. And so this lampstand would have seven lamps and they would make the lampstand and it would be the only light to shine within the holy place. In fact, even behind the veil, there's no light. There's no source of light. The only light that shines in the holy place is the lamp. And I want you to see how beautiful this is because when Jesus is teaching us, he teaches us in John 8 verse 12 that I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. They were instructed, by the way, to, to keep this lamp burning at all times. It should never go out. It was a light that would never dim. And what I find interesting is that even at the end, in the new Jerusalem, in Revelations, we read that the only source of light is Jesus Christ. There is no more sun and there is no more moon. And right in the beginning, we are, we are seeing this image of Jesus being the only light that we need. And he's powered, he's powered with these, this olive oil. Now, both when Scripture is talking about this lamp and when it's talking about this oil, it references this word beaten. Everyone say beaten. In fact, the only piece of furniture in the entire tabernacle that Scripture says was hammered was the lamp. This was a hammered piece, and it references it must be a hammered piece of gold. And then it talks about the olive oil that should fill the piece of gold or this lamp of gold. And it, it says in Exodus 27, 20, tell the people of Israel to bring your clear oil of what? Beaten olives for the light so that it may burn at all time. And then church, you start to read and you start to see the prophecy, Isaiah 53, he was bruised, he was beaten for us. In fact, the reference of olive becomes very, very clear around the time of the crucifixion because Jesus finds himself in the garden of Gethsemane, which many of you would know means the garden of the olive press. Here he is, right in the place where olives are pressed and he is under such pressure that he's sweating blood. Right, this is a representation that the oil would come. What is the oil? It's the Holy Spirit. Scripture references and symbolizes oil with the Holy Spirit at all times. And Jesus says, unless I go, if unless I go through this, the Holy Spirit cannot come. And so it's through the beating, through the crushing, through the pressing that the oil would come and it would empower the light of the world to shine. Right here in this tabernacle is incredible symbolism of Jesus Christ, where he gets his power from, what is empowering even him and causing him to shine in a world of darkness. You move beyond the lamp and you start to find an altar of incense. Everyone say altar of incense. And this was just before the veil. And at the altar of incense, there would be incense that would be constantly burning. Constantly burning. Again, never to go out. And it would release a scent, this fragrance into the room. In fact, it would probably be the only thing from the outside that makes it into the holy of holies behind the veil. Would it be the only thing that would come through would be the scent 
this aroma. Now, what is the incense? Scripture is very clear. It tells us in many places, I'll show you Psalm 141 verse 2. It says, accept my prayer as an incense offered to you. What is the incense? It's the prayers of God's people. In Revelations 8, we see the throne room of God filled with this incense, which it says is a praise of the saints. It's a pleasing aroma to God. Here in the altar, incense burning day and night. And then I turn over a few pages in the Bible and I start to read about Jesus. And in Hebrews 7, it tells me this about Jesus, that he is now my high priest, and he is interceding for me day and night. This altar of incense would ultimately, it, it would reference my high priest, Jesus Christ, who would pray on my behalf day and night for me. Now, what's really interesting is the coals that were used in this incense in the altar were not new coals. You know how, what, where they would get these coals from? They would go outside to the bronze altar and, and this coals in the altar that were covered with the blood of the lamb would be used to empower and used to burn the incense before God. And what a great reminder of you and I because you and I can only have access to God. We can only pray because of the blood of the lamb and the work that was done on the altar. You and I can only pray now in the name of Jesus Christ. We cannot come to God in our own name. We come by the name and the power of Jesus Christ and it's right there in the imagery and the symbolism of the tabernacle in the Old Testament thousands of years ago. And then the next place you would go to from the altar of incense is the Holy of Holies. Everyone say Holy of Holies. This would be the final room in the tabernacle. It would be about four and a half meters wide by four and a half meters long. Not a massive room. But it was separated from the holy place by a veil. Many scholars believe that this veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies was about half a meter thick. I want you to think about how much fabric that is. How heavy that is. In fact, they believe that there is no way that a priest would have actually been able to just pull aside the curtain and walk into the holy place, the, the holy of holies. The only way to get in would have been to crawl on the floor underneath it, to come on bended knee into the holiest place on earth. And as it came into the holy of holies, the holiest place, what they would find is one item a famous item inspired many movies called, take a guess, the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's a real thing. The Ark of the Covenant was this beautiful, beautiful thing that consisted of two pieces. The top piece was solid gold and it was called the mercy seat. And the bottom piece was a mixture of wood and gold and it was a container. And within that container, there were some incredible things that were put inside of there. Now, this container was made of acacia wood. God told them specifically that, they, that the items used in the holy place and the holy of holies must be used from acacia wood. Now, guys, this is really interesting. Acacia wood is one of the only pieces of wood, only uh, trees in that desert region that has thorns in it. 
You would think in the desert there'd be lots of thorny trees, but actually acacia is one of the only thorny trees in the Negev desert. This is where they were wandering in that time. And so many scholars believe that this must have been what they would have used to construct the crown of thorns that they put on the head of Jesus Christ. It could only have been because there's so few trees, thorn trees in that region, but acacia wood is one of them. And so we see Jesus Christ now putting that acacia wood and he becomes a curse for us, right? That's what the thorns represent. We see in Adam and Eve, part of the curse would be the thorns coming in the garden and Jesus Christ takes it and it's telling us about that right over here already in the tabernacle, that Jesus Christ, the presence of God would wear the acacia wood. And inside this container, there were these three items. The first is the, the two tablets of stone on which Moses wrote the Ten Commandments, right after he broke the original pair, right? And so here within, within this Ark of the Covenant, these two tablets of stone, and on them are the Ten Commandments. And I want you to think about this because Jesus tells us this in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or its writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Church, let me remind you that there is only one person on earth who's been able to fill, fulfill the Ten Commandments. There's only one who's lived a perfect life, and it's Jesus Christ. He's the only one who was able to be righteous, who was able to live according to all those commandments. The only one spiritual, moral enough was Jesus Christ. And the tabernacle is pointing to the one who will live perfect in the presence of God. The one who will obey all the commands in the presence of God is right there in the tabernacle. Another item in the tabernacle was manna from heaven. Everyone say manna. Now, you might have remembered the story that as the Israelites were traveling, God would feed them by providing manna in the morning that they could pick up and then eat. Now, the Israelites picked up some of this, put it in a gold jar, and then put that gold jar within the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus himself tells us exactly why they did that and what that means. I'm not going to tell you the symbolism. Let Jesus tell you himself. In John 6, it says, yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats a bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I offer to the world may live is my flesh. Jesus was saying, hey, that manna, that representation of the bread coming down from heaven, that was just a symbol of me. The real bread from heaven is me. And if you eat of me, you'll be satisfied. You'll never go hungry. And we're seeing again a representation of Jesus Christ, the bread of life, right there in the tabernacle so long before he was even born. And the third and final thing within the container of the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod. Some of you might remember the story from Numbers 17 with the leaders of Israel, they're coming around and they're like saying to Moses and Aaron, hey, we can kind of do your job. They're like doubting, you know, whether they're really called by God. And, and so God's like, don't worry, I'll sort this out for you. He tells all the leaders to bring their rods, their staffs. It's dead wood, right? And he tells them to place it down before them. And God says, the rod that I caused to bud and sprout new life, that's the leader that I've chosen. 
So they put their rods down. The next day, Moses returns. He goes into the tabernacle of testimony. And what does he find? But the rod of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. That rod has budded. And church, what has just happened here is in order to confirm who God has chosen to lead, he brought a dead thing back to life. It tells us, in fact, that it was budding and it sprouted blossoms. It already had ripened almonds on it. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and what is that pointing to? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. In order to confirm who God has chosen to lead and given authority to, he brings the dead thing back to life. And this image of the resurrection is already given to us right here in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant. And this container is closed with a, with a lid, the solid gold lid, called the mercy seat. And now this lid would have two cherubims. We don't really know how they look, but we know they had wings that faced each other. And in the middle of these wings would be a gap. Now in this gap would often be where pagan religions would put an image of their God. They would make an idol and they would put it there. But God said, don't do that. Leave the space empty because I'm not a created thing. There's nothing in this creation that can accurately represent me. Nothing, I mean, anything you try to make of me would be an insult to me. So leave that space empty to represent that I'm the creator and that that is my presence over there. What I find is beautiful is that once a year, the chosen high priest would make a sacrifice on behalf of Israel to atone for their sins. And he would come into the Holy of Holies and the only place in the Holy of Holies that he could touch was a gap between the cherubim on the mercy seat where he would there sprinkle the blood of the lamb. And right from the beginning, we are starting to learn that the thing that connects you and me to God would be the blood of the lamb. The thing that brings us close, the thing that enables us to have connection again would be the blood of the Lamb. And then when Jesus comes and he teaches, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the first accurate re representation, the first image of God you can have a look at, the first accurate representation of who God is. Up till now, you haven't been able to see who God is, but I'm showing you now who God is. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so church, we see that right from the beginning, there is imagery of Jesus Christ in every single part of this tabernacle, pointing directly to Jesus. And there's so much more symbolism that we just don't have the time to even get into. But here's what I wanna see if you caught. You see, God is so good with Easter eggs and with symbolism and it is so layered and so deep that this tabernacle doesn't only represent Jesus. You know who else it represents? You. You see, something significant happens on the cross of Jesus Christ. As he gives up his life for us, he says these words, it is finished. And as he says those words, the ground starts to shake and this, temp, this, this veil in the temple, this thing that is meant to represent how hard it is for us to get into the presence of God, how far we are away from the presence of God, this thing begins to tear, this half a meter curtain, this thing that's so thick that you couldn't move it, you had to crawl under it, this thing begins to tear in half from top 
to bottom just to make sure it is God doing it, right? And in that moment, the tabernacle changes, the temple changes, the cross changes the temple, and from that moment on, you become the tabernacle. You are the tabernacle. Look at someone and say, you are the tabernacle. And everything that I've laid out here, it's also about you. You see, the way that you and I become the tabernacle is we, at this altar, receive the sacrifice and the blood of our Savior, the spotless Lamb of God. He is the one that washes away our sins, just like the sins of the Israelites would be washed away. Our sins are now washed away. And then we come to the bronze laver, and it's the Word of God that starts to transform us, but as as it transforms us, we also go through the waters of baptism. After we have been cleansed spiritually from our sins, we show that by washing ourselves through the cleansing of water. For some of you, I believe that's your next step. You haven't yet had that adult baptism experience. Well, I want to encourage you to go to the baptism class after the service today. Because you need to come and step through this bronze labor. You need to be, be washed by the work that God wants to do in and through you. And as we accept, as we accept the blood of the Lamb, and we are washed through baptism, and we are washed through the Word of God, suddenly you and I become the holy place. We become this holy place. And within us is a lampstand. The light of God is in us. And then Jesus says, now you are the light of the world. Because I am in you. You are the light in the darkness. So go and shine. Right? And what empowers us? It's the oil from the pressing. It empowers us. The Holy Spirit empowers you and me to shine in a world of darkness. Because we are the tabernacle. And within us, Jesus says, I want you to do the service of the tabernacle and come around this table often. In fact, it's the only tradition Jesus introduces in the modern church beside baptism. Do this as often as you mean. Think of me. Break the bread. Drink the wine. Do this in remembrance of me. We're seeing our function right here in the Old Testament. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. Live lives of prayer. We become the altar of incense. And we, we can pray now. Because of the blood of the Lamb, we can come into the throne room of God and we can pray. We can fill heaven, like Revelations 8 says, with the incense of our prayers because we are the temple. This is our function. And now within you is the holy of holies. Church, God is not far away. He's in you. You are the temple. The holy place is not far away. We don't have to try to pursue some mysterious throne room that we try to step into. No, it's in you. And within you are the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The righteousness of Jesus is in you. It's been given to you. The fulfillment of the law. When God looks in your holy place, He sees moral perfection and righteousness is dwelling within you. The righteousness of Jesus has been given to you and deposited in you. 
And within you is a manna from heaven. So I do not need to be hungry anymore. My, my spirit no longer needs to be hungry. And some of you need to hear this because you're trying to satisfy yourself with all the stuff the world gives, the junk food of this world. You're trying to eat, but there is a manna from heaven that will satisfy your deepest longings. And it's already inside of you. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one who satisfies you. You never have to hunger again. It's in you. And within you is a power for new life. In fact, it tells us that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, the same power that would cause Aaron's rod to bud, guess where that power is? It's in you. It's in your holy place because you are the temple of God. And within you, there is a mercy seat. But the blood of Jesus Christ allows you to connect with a living God because you are the temple. You are the temple. And so what I want to do today in this message is just try maybe shake up your identity. Reframe who you are. Because God is not hard to find. And He's not far away. He's inside of you. And wherever you go, guess what you take with you? The holy place the holy of holies. Wherever you go, you carry within you the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus. Wherever you go, you carry his power to bring dead things back to life. Wherever you go, you carry substance and manna from heaven to eat off yourself and, and, and feed to others. You, you carry within you the holy place. And some of you, you've forgotten that you're the temple and the functions of the temple now belong to you. The lampstand that keeps shining, we are the ones that need to shine. The altar that keeps the incense, we are the ones who pray. The, the showbread, we are the ones who partake in, in this table. We are the temple of God. And if we could find that in our identity, I think we would always feel connected to God because we, all, we always are. God will never leave you and never forsake you. And this is some uh, a work Jesus did on your behalf. You didn't make yourself the temple. You didn't behave so good one day that God says, wow, you've passed the test. You're at a temple now. No, Jesus did it. He said, it's finished. The work is finished. That's who you are. And every one of you who have given your life to Jesus, every one of you who have be, become Christians, you are now made the temple of God and the holy of holies that was so separate from this nation. They couldn't access it. They couldn't get to it. Only one man once a year could experience it. It now lives in you all the time. And I would hope that we would start to live out of that truth, that this is who we are. I'm a temple of God. That is who you are, church. Let me pray for you. God, I want to just thank you for our identity in you, that you truly make us new. God, I thank you for every temple here. You've shown us right throughout Scripture, God, how you've made us, what the promise was. You've shown us what Jesus would do on our behalf and then what Jesus would make us. You've just, everything you've done, you've shown it to us already. And so Jesus, I pray that your truth would just become real to us. That Holy Spirit, that we would be aware that you're in us with your presence with your righteousness, with your power, that it's all there in us already. God, I wanna thank you that you have made us a temple, 
So may you increase our prayer life. May you increase our ability to shine like a, like a lamp that, that cannot be hidden. God, I pray that we would come around your table often and, and Father, that we would perform the functions of this temple. Holy Spirit, remind us who we are when we're so full of doubt. In those times, God, we're so distracted by the world where we're trying to be satisfied by everything else. God, remind us just who we are in you. And thank you for the work you do. There's truly no one like you, God. We thank you now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.